Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman. I'm from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Listeners who aren't familiar with Carl, I hope you soon will become more so. He's also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which has new guests every week and even more episodes than we have here on the Tennis Abstract podcast, so be sure to check that out. Uh, we missed last week, and this is a pretty busy part of the tennis calendar, so there's a lot to catch up on. I want to start with the week in Paris, the final Masters event of the year. I, guess, I don't know whether the World Tour Finals is technically a Masters or not, but we finished the, the, the nine Open Masters tournaments. And we have a first-time winner in Karen Kashanov. Probably not pronouncing that quite right, but I'm doing my best. Um... He beat a few top 10 players, including Novak Djokovic in the final. It was definitely a career best result for him and a a major step forward, both in the rankings and probably in in confidence. And some research I've done recently has has showed that the Paris Masters is the most likely place for players to get sort of an easy Masters win or a cheap Masters win. And that doesn't seem like that's what happened here. Carl, it, it seems like I mean, Kachanov had to, to work pretty hard to, to win this tournament, don't you think? Oh, yeah. He beat four top ten players. He'd beaten three previously in his career, one of them in a retirement. And there aren't that many tournaments in which one player beats or even meets four top ten players. And he beat them fairly easily. I mean, he, he went to 10-8 in a third-set tiebreaker against John Isner, but, I mean, most John Isner matches start at 8-all in the third-set tiebreaker. <laughs> and even in that match, he didn't face a break point or even really come close to it and, and dominated in the return stats, but just couldn't quite get the breaks he needed in the last two sets. And then he didn't drop a set, didn't even go to a tiebreaker against Zverev, Team, and Djokovic, three guys who are in the field for London. So, you know, three of the best players of 2018. And Kachanov looked like he belongs in that group. And in fact, I he, with his title, he qualified as an alternate for London. And with the way top players sometimes have dropped out and have already dropped out for this year, maybe he'll get a match or two in. Yeah, if I were in, in that field and I was in one of the groups with, say, Dominic Team or Kei Nishikori, I'd really want those guys to stay healthy. I think I might rather play them on an indoor hard court than play Kachanov right now. Uh, yeah, his three titles this year, all indoor hard. So this this is his season. Yeah. Um, and I, I, one thing I'm surprised you didn't mention about the, the Isner match, uh, you were right to point out that, that Kachanov it didn't look like a solid win exactly on paper because you have to go to tie breaks against Isner. But in, in terms of dominance ratio, just return points one relative to, to the opponent's return points one, it was a it, it was not a super close match. Um, I mean, Isner could have won a couple more points and tilted it his way, but had he done so, he would have done so against the odds. Like It looked like Kachanov was threatening Isner's serve a lot more than vice versa. Um and that's a good sign. You know, we can't read too much into the Zverev win because Zverev was was hurt and, and limited a bit. But let's talk about the the final against Djokovic. And it, one of the narratives coming out of that is that Djokovic was tired after maybe all week he was he, he was a bit fatigued, but also after a three hour match against Federer, 
you saw that match, Carl. Do you think that that Kachanov was able to take advantage of a, a sub, a, a Djokovic that wasn't quite at his best? You could say subpar. I mean, subpar <laughs> par yeah. means par for him. So no, I, I wasn't really avoiding good. saying it. I just couldn't think of the word. So that's okay. Fine. Subpar Djokovic. Now you can literally say it. Um, yes, I think he did to some extent. Djokovic came out firing, went up a break, looked strong. And Kachanov did have to work really hard to to get the break back and, and eventually take the first set. But Djokovic was frustrated and, and hitting some weird errors, especially early in points when he normally wouldn't be as quick to try to end a point from a disadvantageous position. He was yelling a lot at his box. He was He looked kind of like the Djokovic of May or much of 2017. So I, I wouldn't put too much too much into that win, but it's still a pretty big deal to beat Djokovic in a final at a Masters when he won his last, I think, 22 matches and had never lost the final in Paris and whatever other stats the, the commentators were, were repeating about how formidable the challenge was. Quick side note, Jeff and I are doing our best to pronounce the name of this up-and-coming star. We listened a few times to him saying his name, and if you don't know this already, one of the best features of an ATP site that has a lot of things Jeff and I would probably change if we were given the keys to it, one thing I know I'd keep is the audio icon on player pages where you can click and listen to the player himself saying his name. And sometimes I think commentators could stand to do that a little more, but even so we're screwing it up left and right, so don't want to sound too high and mighty. Yeah, definitely not high and mighty, but it's good to have the resource there. I agree, especially if you want to talk about Pierre-Huge Herbert. Oh, uh, well done. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We, we listened <laughs> to it a few weeks ago, but not, not since then. I was, I was in Paris for the first day of play. I didn't, I, I didn't get to see him play, but I did see him posing for pictures with kids on the concourse. So I, I didn't call out his name, though, out of shyness or shame or something. Um <laughs> Yeah, that that's a, a really nice feature, and I I agree. A lot of a lot of the commentators who are otherwise quite good could stand to pay a little bit more attention. Um, so, you mentioned yeah, it, it, Djokovic had a ton of positive stats going into this, and I think we have to give Kachanov credit, even if Djokovic was you know at eighty percent or something. Eighty percent of Djokovic is still a, a really formidable opponent. Um, now, the, the proximate cause for Djokovic's fatigue is that semifinal against Federer, which went three sets, um, three hours-ish, and Djokovic obviously ended up coming out on top in the end. I haven't seen it yet. I'll probably get around to it one of these days. But it's it sounded like a classic. I think one one or both of the players said it was their, their best match of the 47 times they've played each other. Um, do you agree with that, Carl? Do you think this is this is sort of an instant classic? No. Well, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you said, do you agree with that? And I was going to comment on whether it was the best Djokovic-Federer match, and then you, you bait and switched. Um, it is an instant classic in the sense of it's going to make, I think, several of the best ATP matches of the year lists, and it should. One of the, the problems I have with it is not to the same extent as Kachanov versus Isner, this wasn't as close as the score suggests. Uh, Djokovic was threatening Federer's serve throughout, and Federer ended up getting the only break of the match, 
mostly because Djokovic made a really bad decision on breakpoint and hit a sitter right back at Federer and opened up a down-the-line winner. But Federer otherwise was basically not threatening Djokovic's serve, much like the last time they met in the Cincinnati final. So Federer did incredibly well to save all 12 break points and to get to a third set tiebreaker, but this could have been a you know 7-5, 6-4 scoreline like the final was, just based on how how uneven the play was. Then again, that's a pretty good result for Federer because he was blown out in that Cincinnati final. He hadn't had too many big wins recently, and he um, he'd fallen behind Djokovic by a large margin in the in the race for number one and just in in general level. So I, I think it was a, a moral victory for him, but he's still a ways behind. Do you think that's a gap? he he can ever make up again? I mean, sure, because it would have seemed preposterous in 2016 when Djokovic and Murray were battling for number one and Federer was struggling and then out. Um, I think these things look impossible, especially when it's the younger guy who's ahead and then things suddenly change. One sort of microcosm of that was their 2016 Australian Open semi where... Djokovic came out and felt like he barely lost a point in the first two sets against Federer. And if somebody, if someone commentary had asked, like, does Federer have any chance of getting back into this match? Well, of course not. He's going to get blown out in the third. He won the third set. Then he lost the fourth. So this wasn't a miraculous comeback. But in the short term and in the long term, the um, what looks like dominance can can shift very quickly. Yeah, that's definitely true, and we've seen that that Djokovic can look dominating um, over the longer term and suddenly stop for reasons that outsiders can't really see. Um, quick quick uh, footnote yeah. to your question before. I think the best Djokovic-Federer match, this is not controversial, but 2014 Wimbledon final when Djokovic won 6-4 in the fifth. I'm, I'm surprised that Djokovic thought this one was better because that was obviously a bigger occasion, but also just an incredible match. Well, even the greatest tennis players on earth are subject to recency bias. <laughs> maybe and, especially. And maybe, like, I don't think this is a, an official bias, but on-court interview crowd-pleasing bias, that's another one. <laughs> my favorite tournament, my favorite <laughs> match, my favorite opponent. Yes, that sounds about right. Uh, yeah, when I, I, I did a quick tour this last this last week of, of Basel and Paris. So I was at the, the semifinals in Basel and... Um, and then the first day in Paris, and the, uh, on Saturday in Basel, all the, the post-match interviews were in German, including with uh, Marius Koppel, who's Romanian, but speaks German, what sounded to me pretty confidently. Uh, but my friend who, who took me to Basel, who's Edo, who you heard on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, he speaks enough German to translate for me, and it, it, it was, I appreciated his efforts, but at the same time, it, it kind of sounded like he was just making jokes because he was translating. Couple or Edo? Uh, <laughs> Edo. <laughs> well, it, it sounded like what I would do if I were pretending to translate a post-match interview because the post-match interviews are so predictable about, you know, I love this tournament, appreciate all the fan support, I've had a great week, all credit to my opponent, all this stuff. Like they're all The they're sponsors, all... Jeff. Forget, don't forget the sponsors. I'm not sure if he mentioned the sponsors, <laughs> but that, that could be Edo's fault. I'm not sure. He might have... He, he might have failed to translate that part. It's not his first or second language, so we can't expect 
um, expect too much, especially compared to me who knows like seven words of German. But, um, but yes, it, it, he, he was diligently translating everything Coppel said and it, 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 there was no content whatsoever. I somehow was paying more attention than usual because I was getting it translated personally. Um, but yeah, not, not, not the most compelling content, but it was, I was surprised to, to, after all that time to see him, um, come out and speak German it was impressive. Um, I'm thinking of like comedies where someone speaks for a long time in a foreign language and then the translator standing next to them says, he said, thank you. Yeah. That's, sometimes translators do sum it up. That's a, a classic from, um, whose line is it anyway? They do that sort of thing a lot. And, um, I think mystery science theater did that a lot as well. Um, I think it makes a couple of appearances on veep as well, which I truly love. Um, now, Carl, we haven't we haven't talked about Rajiv Ram, who won this title with Marcel Granollier this week. Um, we were we were talking a lot before we started the we hit record about Ram's success, and this is his second Masters title. You said uh, that's right. He won twenty seventeen Indian Wells. Okay, and and we can't delve too far into this because I don't know what would make it interesting, but. You said that he's won seven titles in the last two years, and how many different partners has he done that with? Six. Six partners. Super impressive. Oh, I have a. I, f- I forgot to put this on our, our our outline, so I have to run this theory by you, Carl. Um, now I watched two doubles matches in Paris, and I I think you're the same way, Carl. That anytime you see live tennis, you end up more jazzed about doubles because that's when you really sit and watch doubles. So. And you can often sit courtside. Yeah, not a lot of competition for seeding at many doubles matches. So I saw I saw two doubles first round doubles matches on Monday. One of them was um, Roger Takao against Dimitrov Fanini, and the second was Rom Granollers against Diego Schwartzman and Maximo Gonzalez. And not only did the doubles specialists win both of those matches, they went on to play each other in the final. So I, by picking Dimitrov and Schwartzman, I picked the right matches to see, but. In both of those matches, I think this is true, and I think this is true of a lot of other doubles matches I've watched in the past, the singles players looked as good as the doubles players, even at doubles-specific skills, like Dimitrov playing in net, things like that. And at least in the Schwarzman match, they were a lot more competitive early on than they ended up being in the end. Because I think the Schwarzman match went 6-3, 6-1 to Granier's Rom. So my theory is that tactics and tactical discipline are so important in doubles that double specialists become specialists because they are so good at that, at strictly following their tactics, like picking the right serve directions and net man directions, things like that, and sticking with that for the duration of a 90-minute match, whereas the singles players don't have the, the practice or the discipline or whatever. But my point is, my theory is like, that's a much bigger factor than is often given credit for. Because normally the commentators will just say, this guy's good at doubles because he had great hands or he's really good at the net or something. Um, what do you think, Carl? Is that, a, is that a valid theory, do you think? I think less of it now that I know you think that Schwartzman Gonzalez lost 6-1 in the second, even though you were sitting right there. Like 6-4. <laughs> this was only a few days ago. Um, it's amazing how much the human mind can forget, certainly including mine. Um, I think your theory makes a lot of sense. You know, I I really wonder, 
you were mentioning the different components that could be baked into this this concept of discipline and one of the biggest ones could really be just knowing what the right plan is and that would take time and maybe coaching and experience playing against players and I can't imagine Gonzalez and Schwartzman go into that match spending a lot of time thinking about like which which guy are you hitting at when and which side when you have to hit at him and uh, who's the better one to lob and you know we it's just like they may have some rudimentary ideas about it and sort of figure it out as they go, but it seems much more likely that doubles players are going to be putting in that effort and, and having that that instinct and experience. So Gonzalez and Schwartzman could come up with a plan in the warm-ups and then stick to it completely, but it could be the wrong plan. Yeah, I, I'd be fascinated to have this sort of conversation with, a double specialist, maybe Rajiv Ram himself, and and understand better what goes into that planning, like whether there's advanced scouting or even if there's not, like how confident they are about whether they should go one direction or another with the serve or choosing the whole play of the serve direction combined combined with the direction that the the net player goes. Uh, they seem to make such confident decisions, and they make so many of them. Like, I can't imagine getting to the point where I would hundred times in the course of a match, you know, feel confident that I should go left or right or serve ad or T. Uh, but it, it double specialists all seem to do that. So I, I, I'm curious how they get to that point or what all goes into those decisions. And so much of it seems to be the necessity of having a plan so that when you have to make incredibly fast decisions, you make the right ones or you're not even making the decision. It's automatic. And the way you can go from that sort of deliberate plan into the instinctive shot is pretty incredible to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking of double specialists, we have to talk about Jack Sock. Uh, he made the semis and the doubles, but that's not the interesting thing. The interesting thing is this was where he was defending basically all of his points. He won Paris last year. Uh, he, he went and made the semis of the World Tour Finals. So all those points dropped off. And the only chance of even getting some of them back were, were playing in Paris this week, so or this past week. So he made the quarters, which is better than I might have expected from him, but not enough to even stay in the top 100. So I think right now, I didn't check the, the rankings today. I know in the live rankings he's 105, so maybe that's where he's at, 105 or 106. Which means he's on the, right on the edge of the Australian Open cutoff. Uh, depending on how the U.S. challengers go in the next couple weeks, he'll probably get the USTA wild card for the Australian Open. So he's in the Australian Open no matter what. But unless he does well there, he's going to be starting to look at some hard decisions, like, I don't know, having to play qualies at Indian Wells, if he would even make it into Indian Wells qualies, and lots of wild cards next year probably because there's so many tournaments in the U.S. and Sock is a reasonably big name. So, Carl, what what do you think we should expect from from Jack Sock next year? I mean, is is twenty eighteen a good indicator? Are we going to see this fringy player like maybe Pierre Herbert, who's a great doubles player who's just on the fringes of the singles world? I am baffled. I mean, his twenty seventeen was backloaded, and he did a lot of his damage and just two tournaments, Paris and London. But 
he still won a whole lot of other matches, and he wasn't good enough to be top 10, probably, based on, like, who he beat and who he lost to. But he's not outside the top 100 in quality either. And we've talked in recent episodes about how players can be carrying some kind of injury and yet still playing, so we think they're just suddenly terrible, and that all players are carrying some degree of injury at all times. That theory doesn't seem like it would apply to Sock because he's been so damn good in doubles this year. Now, I know it's a different sport, but if he were if he were seriously hampered, he wouldn't be winning the U.S. Open and Wimbledon in doubles. Um, I, I do wonder if his doubles prowess is going to help him, uh, not help him, but sort of if he'll lean on that more than he's been willing to in the past, and he'll go to tournaments where he's in the main draw in doubles, and since he's there anyway and, you know, guaranteed a spot and might go deep that week, no matter who he's playing with, because that's how good he is at doubles, that he'll then play qualifying in those tournaments and get wild cards into qualifying if he doesn't directly get in and get into some singles draws. And it doesn't take much to get the ranking a little higher. I mean, just by making the quarterfinals in Paris this past week, he dug himself out of what could have been a much deeper hole, and now a full one-third of his singles ranking points come from that one result. So another result or two, and maybe he's at least back into the main draws of tournaments. It does show you, though, how many different levels there are of rankings and how hard it can be to to move up because the very structure of entry into events can, can hold you back even if your raw ability wouldn't. Yeah, and you can see that, and actually Herbert is not a bad example of that as well, because he's hovered in the the 60 to 70 range quite a bit over the years. I think he might be within the top 60 right now, but looking at those players who are, let's say, outside the top 40, um, I'm thinking of guys like Goyacek and Maximilian Martyr this year, Herbert as well. Um, Tennis Sandgren, who we, we talked about earlier in the season, who who got a big ranking boost out of his Australian Open performance. It's a different threshold than where Sock sits right now, but it's a it's a tricky one, too, because you might just barely get into a Masters draw, but you're not expected to win. Um, you might have to play Masters qualifying. I mean, you almost never get seated anywhere, but you probably play um, tour-level events and not challengers. So you can go a long time without winning very ma- many matches, except for maybe the occasional, I don't know, 250 quarterfinal or something. And... That doesn't seem like a great environment for someone like Jack Sock. I mean, it seems like I, I can imagine him going in in a really wide range of directions next year. One is that he could, you know, make the fourth round at the Australian Open and then win Delray or something in February, and then boom, he's back in the top fifty. End of story. Uh, the other possibility is he'll keep losing most of his matches, and he'll lose the rest of his points except for the ones from Paris and and it'll become even more bleak and he will be faced with playing a lot of challengers which might be tough for him at this point um but yeah like like you started out by saying Carl it's it's really baffling because the I mean the talent is undeniable and you see it on the doubles court week in week out but it somehow doesn't translate to single success he does have even though you've been rightly critical in the past of how Liberally, tournaments in the U.S. especially were handing out wild cards to Sock when he was younger and coming up. He does have a decent record of playing, qualifying, and, and making it into tournaments. I, I see just in 
2013 and 2014, he qualified for three tournaments in, in France, including the French Open and um, the Paris Masters. So I could, I, I, I think he could, he could go that route again if he needs to, but it was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of this just comes down so much to him. I mean, he's repeatedly said over the years and we've repeatedly reported it that he's serious about singles, not that serious about doubles, but at some point, poor singles results and world-class doubles results would have to start changing his mind about that. And if if Bob Bryan comes back, maybe this is the year that Jack Sock needs to have a serious full-time partnership. Maybe with Rajiv Ram. Who knows? Um, maybe but, we should quickly... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. You go. I was just going to say that we, we talked about Kachanov, and I know we're going to shift to WTA in a minute, but... Sock was the surprise winner of Paris last year, which got him into the top 10. If we had been predicting his year-end ranking for 2018, I don't think either of us would have predicted 105. Um, what do you, where do you see Kachanov, who's, I think, fifth in your ELO ratings right now? Where do you see him at the end of 2018? He's 11 now with the win. You mean end of 2019? Excuse me, end of 2019. End yeah. of 2018 is pretty predictable. Yeah, I can nail that one. Um, I'll say end of 2019, I think he's within the top 10. I'd say number eight, number nine, maybe. What do I was going to say eight. I was going to say eight. That's, that's funny. Um, and it's hard to see him at 105, right? <laughs> yeah. Very difficult to see him at 105. Uh, yeah. He, although, I mean, it would have been very difficult to see Jack Sock at 105 last year either. I mean, Without an injury anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we might have... I'd be curious what we would have said last year. I mean, it's it's so hard to kind of retrospectively make projections like that. I mean, as much as we might think we're being analytical about it, it's been pretty conclusively shown that people adjust what they... They'll change what they think they thought about things in the past um, based on what actually happened. So we might start to think we were more skeptical of Jack Sock because we know how it turned out. I'd love to know what we really thought of... I mean, I know I've always been a little bit skeptical of Jack Sock. Um, maybe not even for good reasons, but I don't I don't think we would have been as aggressive about him. I mean, certainly last year's Paris tournament was was obviously ended up being rather weak because I mean, Nadal withdrew then, Djokovic wasn't playing, um, I think Federer wasn't playing. So Sock got through beating you know, Beneteau and Krajinovic in the semifinals and finals. So it's a very, very different story from what Kachanov did here. Um, and I hope that he can build on that and certainly finish next year in the top 100. <laughs> yeah, I think we would have said teens or 20s for Sock because before Paris, that's where he'd been for a while. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so as you said, Carl, we do need to switch over to the WTA. Uh, lots to talk about there. But before we do that... I want to save our main discussion of the World Tour Finals for next week when the World Tour Finals are actually upon us. But since we now know the field, um, barring injuries, I think Nadal saying he's going to be there. I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, I'm sure he'll be in London, but we'll see whether he actually plays. Um, who are you picking as your as your winner? Oh, Sock Bryan. We're talking doubles, right? Yeah, we're, t- we're talking doubles. It, it, Rom must be qualified, right? So it's Granollier Rom. Uh, they have only the thousand points they won last week. No, he's Ram's played with too many partners. Darn it. Yeah. Okay, so he's is he playing doubles in the next gen finals then? Rajiv Ram. 
that's that's the question I want to answer is, okay, so in order to have the way the next gen files worked out by drawing the line at age 21, it it ended up being a little bit unexpectedly elegant that it's the youngest cutoff you can have where the entire field is in the top 100. And Wow. Right? Is that how it worked out? Pretty a very close. And That's it was great. It was similar last uh, last year as well. Um, it I mean, it's a be. little skewed because Zverev could have played both years and chose not to. So who knows where the cutoff could have been. True. And this year, Shapovalov qualified and he didn't play. But it, it's worked out this way where the back end of the field is like 80, 90 in the rankings. But what I want to know is if that's the, the, the standard or if that, that's the goal of having an age cutoff, if you had a, a doubles event at the next-gen finals... What would the age cutoff have to be to to have eight players in the top 100? Eight or 16? 16. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I get, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the standard should be. If you should have the, of the top 100 teams, it's tricky because the younger you get, the less likely players are regularly uh, entering tournaments with the same partners. Let alone with the same partner who's young. Yeah, exactly. So I think you'd have to go with individual players, but you would want an eight-team field, probably. So, but I mean, we're probably talking early thirties, no matter how no yeah. matter how we define it. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, it's hilarious. The next gen of double stars. Yeah, thirty-two years old. Yeah. And what's what's interesting to me about that as well is is the average, median, whatever of of doubles players is so old, but you do have. A few stars who are significantly younger, like Jack Sock and Herbert, and I think Loxanen is still relatively young for doubles. Uh, so it isn't it isn't like no one's playing double until their thirties until they're in their thirties, but there just aren't very many who are choosing to play doubles until that age. There are more than enough uh, under thirty actually in the top one hundred. I'm surprised. Okay. Um, yeah, so, some of whom are singles players who have had good results, but some of whom are, are full-time doubles players. Notably, um, Ben McLaughlin, Japanese, has had a great year, ranked 18th. We might see him in London next year. Yes, I, I sat right behind him in Paris for the Feliciano Lopez-Alex Dimonor match. I was I, I sat down when before the match started, and then all the players just gathered around me. So I was right in front of John Millman and just across the aisle from Philip Kohlschreiber and then McLaughlin came in and yeah, it was, it was fantastic. The experience of not quite being able to overhear what they were talking about with their teams was stirring stuff. And they were all constantly taking out their phones and pulling up tennisabstract.com to look up stats about the match. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Carl, you and I have talked about this. I, I think the tennis abstract needs to sponsor a player in the future and, and I, I really missed an opportunity to open those lines of communication because I think John Millman would be a good tennis abstract yeah. sponsory. Definitely. Yeah, McLaughlin it might be more affordable since he's only a doubles player. And it would be appropriate. Why would it be appropriate? Because we were supposed to start talking about the WTA five or ten minutes ago, but we're talking about doubles. Exactly. I was wondering how McLaughlin was rel- was relevant to the WTA, but now I'm, I, I, I teased that all out. So, good. Now that we've said three times between us that we need to switch to the WTA, I think it's time to switch to the WTA. Since we didn't have an episode last week, we haven't talked about 
the results in Singapore. And this past week, we also had the WTA Elite Trophy in Zhuhai. Uh, and this pretty much wraps up the season, with the exception of the, the Fed Cup Final, which is this weekend, and which is super weird because the U.S. is involved and pretty much every American woman has withdrawn. So it's... And I think Karolina Pliskova has withdrawn for Czech as well. So it, it's going to be missing a lot of names. But let's start with Singapore. Um, Alina Svitolina was our winner. Sloane Stevens was our runner-up. And Svitolina was undefeated in five matches. Uh, Sloane was undefeated until the final. And it's a, it's a huge, huge result for Svitolina. I mean, her career best victory since she's never won a slam uh, she'd had a pretty weak second half of this year so she she wasn't even sure she was going to be in the tournament until a couple weeks before or a week before I think it took the Moscow results to confirm it so a really strong week for her the when you look at a tournament like this we've had some some years where the the last qualifiers or the lowest ranked players in the field end up winning and it doesn't necessarily carry over to future success, just like some slams in the last few years have as well. And I'm curious what you think about this, Carl. It seems to me like the surface of a relatively slow hardcore really dictated these results. I mean, Svitolina is is a counterpuncher, but comfortable on hard. Sloane Stevens, also kind of a counterpuncher who excels on hard courts. Maybe this is, this is just, you know, ex post facto self-congratulation, but it seems like the right pick to make on the surface. I mean, do you think that's part of the reason why some of these, some of, some of the Singapore champions aren't able to, to, to build on the result because, because they're more surface driven than say form driven? Yeah. I mean, both tours decide for scheduling reasons to go indoors for their final and to play on a surface that maybe matches the tournaments that lead up to it, as opposed to any of the slams, which are pretty distant from late October or November. So I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, you add in that with, with players that evenly matched, you can get a result that, um, I mean, it's certainly more meaningful in the sense of Svitolina beat five top 10 players, but the actual matches that get you there can be so close that you could have be telling a, a very specific narrative about a very non-determinate event. I mean, Svitolina twice in her matches, we've already brought up dominance ratio. I always hesitate to bring it up on the podcast because it's kind of confusing to explain, but since it's out there, she twice in her five matches actually lost more return points than she won. And two other times it was quite close. So she she won close matches and that's that's a great way to win a title, but it's not necessarily predictive of future dominance. Yeah, that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. I mean this was an almost maybe unprecedented or almost unprecedented uh, tournament in that there were so many three set matches. I think I remember right from the commentary that nine of the 12 round robin matches went to three sets. And then I think all of the matches after that did as well. So, uh, I partly, I might be exaggerating that because I, I watched all the matches and it took a really, really long time. Um, but it was enjoyable. I mean, consistently high level tennis and like the, the, the theme for this year has been this sort of extreme parody. And sometimes that, doesn't seem like such a good thing because we want to see stars emerge and it's frustrating when 
someone like Simona Halep looks like she's taking a step forward and then can't sustain it. But the positive side of that is that you have a lot of women playing really good tennis. And I mean, Kiki Burton's just barely qualified, but I mean, she played great in a few matches and really entertaining to watch. So and I think a lot of people look at results like this or the state of the field right now and think these are maybe the top 10 really deserves to be the next 10 or outside the top five or something. But to me, the bonus is you get so many good matches among among the top players. And that, that isn't always true on a tour where there are, are a few dominant players who are going to rack up a bunch of 6-1, 6-2 wins, as we've seen from really everybody in previous generations like Serena and Venus and... Justine Hennon and so on. Um, so a lot of enjoyable tennis to watch there. I'm curious, Carl, we've, we've been talking about Svitolina since pretty much the first episode of this podcast, and her her future is, I mean, remains unclear. She's yet to win the slam. As I pointed out earlier, she didn't have a great second half, half of this year. I think she came in ranked sixth, and now she's fourth after winning the title, I think. Um what would you predict to be her 2019 year-end ranking? 105. <laughs> um, but but top 10 in doubles, right? Yeah, exactly. She'll be she'll be in Singapore for doubles. Yeah, I mean, she should still be generally at least even if not upward trajectory. She's 24, but it was until Singapore somewhat disappointing season i'm gonna say seven okay i'm i'm kind of perennially optimistic about svitolina at least in the last couple perennials um yeah i'm gonna say she's gonna be top still top four maybe not better than number four but i did she she did she's i think she said after losing at the u.s open that she blamed it a little bit on getting used to her, her she called it her new body she's lost a lot of weight and gotten a lot stronger um and it is it, it's visible you can tell it's a big change and i could understand that if, if you're adapting to a body that doesn't quite respond the way that it used to um maybe this does represent a step forward in kind of being able to play your best tennis with the new level of fitness. If it does, then I think the rest of the tour needs to watch out. Um, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if she ended next year at number one, but that's a, a pretty aggressive forecast for anybody, including the current number one, Simona Halep. I um, saw Svitolina blow away the field at Madison Square Garden in New York in February at tiebreak 10s, or maybe it was March, and thought, okay, she's... She's ready to roll. And then I felt kind of burned at the, at the subsequent SummerSlam. So maybe that's why I'm being cautious. Well, and there, there's a reason to be cautious about pretty much everybody in the field. The one exception, actually, is is, is one of the players who went to Zhuhai, which is Arena Sabalenka. And I, I don't need to, probably need to rehash all of the pros about Sabalenka right now since we devoted a lot of an episode to her a month or so ago. But... I'm curious, Carl, now that we've seen Sabalenka, she competed pretty well in Zhuhai. She just barely missed out on advancing to the semifinals. I would say the two biggest names coming out of Zhuhai are Sabalenka and Ashley Barty, who did win that tournament. Uh, They're both kind of shockingly in the top four of my current ELO ratings, which, I mean, it's it's shocking how, how many 
established top players they've they've gotten past uh, in those rankings. What are your forecasts for them ranking wise year end twenty nineteen? Let's say Sabalenka and Barty. So I can't say seven for either because that would be a crowded spot in the <laughs> rankings. Yeah. Um, but you're leaning towards seven for everybody? <laughs> for everybody. Um, yeah, there's something I like about seven. I guess it's kind of lucky. Uh, Sabalenka, eight, and Barty, 11. And that's pretty much where Barty is right now, right? Around 11? I thought she was more like 15. Okay, I'm not sure where she landed after winning Zhuhai. Um Jeff, you've now said Zhuhai enough times that I think you have to explain what it is. The tournament? Like I, think the there are people, I think there are people who think, you know, the season ends in Singapore. And it, it probably should. It sort of does. Yeah. It sort of does. So, yeah, two weeks ago we had the Singapore Tour Finals with the top eight. And then the following week, this past week, is the WTA Elite Trophy, which is in, for, for the last... I don't know, four years or something. It's been in Zhuhai. It was in Sofia before as the Tournament of Champions. And both of those tournaments, the format is similar to the Singapore, London, or next-gen final round robins, except instead of eight players, there are 12. And instead of four-player groups, there are three-player groups. So it's kind of strange where instead of everybody playing three matches, everyone plays two, and that means it's pretty likely that you have groups that are all tied at one and one uh, and that happened in at least at least one of the groups which means the, they then go to sets and then to games as a tiebreaker and I have the, the stats handy because I knew I wanted to mention this okay in the orchid group of Ashley Barty Arena Sabalenka and Caroline Garcia they each played two matches they each won one and lost one. Every match was in straight sets. Uh, almost every set was 6-4, <laughs> actually, except for for one set that Barty beat Garcia 6-3. So everybody won two sets and lost two sets. And the one loss in the, in the game column, Barty won the group because her game one loss was 20-19. Sabalenka was second because her game one and loss was 20-20. And then Garcia was in dead last, which she should be truly ashamed of, for being at 19 and 20. So the difference is, I mean, we talk about the small margin in, in tennis, but this is ridiculous. I mean, that's, that, that's nothing. Uh, well, it's funny, Jeff, because we accept in a single match that it'll be decided 10-8 in a, in a final set tiebreaker. But when it's two matches and we have to separate players, is it just because, like, when you're playing the first match, you don't know what the target is? Is that why it feels so wrong? Well, I guess I, I guess it comes down to where the what it is that's that's so high leverage. Because we, I mean, I agree. There's a there's a paradox here that sometimes some points being really high leverage is accepted, and other times it's questionable. So. So yeah, that's a good point. But we've been trained that if if John Isner's playing, if we get to eight eight in a tiebreak, then this is a high leverage point. Everybody knows it. So yeah, like you're saying, we you don't know at three three in the first set of your first round robin match that every point is high leverage. Uh, it could determine whether you advance from the round robin group or not. So maybe that maybe that's it. 
I think maybe also, what we need, Jeff, is a whole new format. Like, if it's really just going to be between these three players and come down to games, then have them play one giant match where, like, they rotate every game who's in there and there's a scoreboard and everyone can see it. Because I think that, I mean, I'm, I, I'm somewhat serious, even though I know it would never happen, but it would get at this point of, like, you're decided... Your, your fate is decided based on some composite score that you were never really aware of or, or shooting toward. Whereas if it is all one competition between the three players, then uh, then everybody does know what they're going for. To be much less serious, yesterday I had the fourth in a doubles match drop out, and we did a rotating Canadian, and that would be very entertaining for the fans. This is actually going to be the name of, of Carl's memoirs in in a few decades, it's going to be, it's going to be called rotating Canadian five years or five decades of amateur tennis. <laughs> and, and around the world, people call Canadian different things. So I think the, the New Zealanders call it Australian. So I, I don't really know what it should be called. I call it Bialik style. Love it. So yeah, I think, I, yeah, I agree. That sort of thing would never happen, but I, it's, it's <laughs> worth, oh, it's, it, it's, it's worth better understanding why we object. Because even even in Singapore, I saw a lot of tweets with people complaining about how the the semifinalists were being decided by matches that, I mean, it, the, a player might be knocked out by the result of a match that they're not involved in. And in the in the three player group scenario, part of the reason why the, the ATP trialed it in I don't know twenty, I don't know ten years ago ish, and and it, they ended up abandoning it because there were some, some there was a lot of confusion about what happens when a player retires mid-match because if you have these set level and game level tiebreakers then what happens if if a player quits midway through does that mean that the player who didn't quit is denied the opportunity to rack up their set or game totals i mean in singapore they just when osaka withdrew in her match the whoever she was playing which just was given a straight set victory for the purpose of the tie break. But, but what, there's no, there's no obvious solution to that. And you still end up with a situation where your fate is decided even by something that's totally out of your hands. So, or, or out of your feet. I mean, this is the world cup. This is soccer. Like most tennis fans or at least many love soccer and accept the round robins and accept the groups. And I guess I'm still like, I, I too have that, aesthetic instant reaction of oh this is gross this isn't how tennis should work but maybe it's just like so many other things where we're not yet we haven't gotten used to it i shouldn't say yet because it's been the case for a while but it feels like something people could get used to yeah it could be and i mean i think complaints tend to surface more than their representation would require so i mean we talk about these things because we need to have controversies to talk about. I'm not sure whether the majority of people watching matches in Zhuhai could care less. I mean, they're, they're they're watching the matches and enjoying them, and generally the players with good results advance, and that's fine. Um, on the other hand, I think another reason why this is so important is because one of the problems with tennis in the traditional uh, one-and-done format is and the, the reason why the ATP trialed round robins in the past and why the tour finals have ended up in this round robin format is when you have great players who show up for your, for your event, it's, it's really unfortunate when they show up and lose. Uh, and 
a round robin format guarantees that you know, Roger Federer is going to play three matches in London. Um, Caroline Wozniacki is going to play three matches in Singapore. Uh, Zhang Shui played was guaranteed to play two matches in uh, Zhuhai, even though she she lost both of those matches. And I that's a really beneficial thing when when we talk about the, some of the problems with with tournaments being successful and attracting fans. That's one solution with a lot of validity to it is figure out a way to get the top players to play more. Uh, but then it does raise these problems and you wonder whether like maybe we should be investigating playing just straight double elimination tournaments. Um, I mean, there's other ways of, of getting players on court multiple times without ha- putting, taking their fate out of their hands or their feet. Yeah. Um, and and I want to get back to some of the, the, the questions around Zhuhai, but I, I I led to that conversation by just saying, hey, we should explain what it is. But before then, I was giving my Barty Sabalenka forecast for 2019 end-of-year rankings. I'm curious what yours are. Well, I'm very bullish on Sabalenka. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if she's top five this time next year. Um, but a player who's climbed the rankings so fast, especially someone who has such an aggressive game, I, I feel like the variance is, is very high for her as well. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if she was outside the top 20, but I'm still going to say number five end of next year. For Barty, I'm not sure. Um, I, I go back and forth about how bullish I am about Ashley Barty. I mean, there's some things she does so well. I mean, she's one of the best... Uh, mid-court and net players on the WTA Tour. I mean, she she has sort of a throwback style that works really well in doubles and looks good on grass, where she sets some of her best results. So I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up winning Wimbledon someday. But I have a hard time seeing her succeed over a full season. So, I mean, 11 feels about right to me, too. I think she'll she'll be top 10 for a while over the course of her career, but... Maybe she'll never be top five. I'm not sure. If she wins Wimbledon, then it'll make it easy for her to crack the top five, most likely. But uh, but I don't think that's going to happen this year. So yeah, I'll say five for Sabalenka. And did you say eleven for Ashley Barty? Yeah, and she is fifteen now. Okay, even after and, Juhai. Okay. Yeah, uh, and she just getting to where she has now, and and which is roughly as you point out where she was at the end of last year is pretty incredible because she was coming back from, I think, two years away from the tour, or two, a year and a half away from the tour in 2016. She just didn't like the, the pressures of international tennis. She tried out professional cricket, and she um, she had zero ranking points in 2016. So pretty, pretty awesome where she is now. Yeah, it is impressive. Uh, and she I think she came back in the grass season and was immediately successful i think she made a final in nottingham or something like that uh, so so yeah i mean should maybe that's what more players should do is take some time out and play cricket it would <laughs> it would certainly give you a greater appreciation for tennis cricket by the way has some some weird rules around like you know you were saying what if someone in a round robin uh, retires from their match and if there's like a rain delay in cricket there's a very complicated not that complicated but a lot of decimal points uh, mathematical formula for how to adjust the um, the target that one team is going for hmm 
so sports do try to deal with these questions of like, okay, we have these unexpected events. How do we still make the final outcome fair? Yeah, that's always the difficulty. Is it, it, it's it, this comes up in pretty much every discussion of the WTA and ATP rankings. Is there this weird compromise between something that's very sensible and intuitive and something that's accurate? And you can't have both. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so often what you end up with is even more confusing than something like ELO uh, with all the all the exclusions and exceptions and and things that make it more complicated than, I don't know, just a simple algorithm based on opponent quality. But then people want to fix it by adding more quirks. Like, I mean, people always want to bring back bonus points for beating top opponents and I don't know, get in a conversation with any casual fan about rankings and I guarantee you within 10 minutes they will propose a new addition to the ranking system. No one will ever propose taking anything out of the system. It's always making it more complicated. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned yet with Zhuhai, although you hinted at it, Carl, is it's weird that Zhuhai finishes the season after Singapore. Um would if we put you in your in your familiar hypothetical situation as commissioner slash god of tennis, uh, would you swap those two? I think the ATP approach of having Milan before London, the next gen finals in Milan first makes makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm more just bothered by, I, you know, much more than the round robin format. I just think it's weird to have these events where play the rich get richer, the players who already have ranking points and money get more ranking points and money, and everyone else is outside looking in. I mean, I guess you could say everyone can qualify, but they're such small fields. And then Zhuhai adds the weirdness of a wild card. So that's really like, hey, you didn't even qualify, but here's a chance at all this these points and riches. Milan doesn't count for for points, so I feel better about it. So yeah, those are the things that make me queasy. Yeah, I agree, and I even feel that way for the ranking points about the tour finals because there's so many points at stake, and what they essentially do is just give the t- the year end top eight a, a bigger lead over the rest of the field, um, and you end up with with these weird adjustments coming 51 weeks later, like. Jack Sock and Debbie Goffin and Grigor Dimitrov um, losing so many points before Paris or after, I guess after Paris um, because they qu- did well in this in this tournament they qualified for that not many other players could play. So I'm I'm with you there. Uh, I also agree the the wild card is is a bizarre addition to a year end thing. I, I do think I. I I'm normally anti wildcard no matter what, but it would be it would be entertaining to me if if Zhuhai came before Singapore and the Zhuhai winner got a wildcard mm-hmm. into Singapore. Mm-hmm. Or I was even thinking if since I'm I'm all in on Sabalenka, I was thinking that maybe there should be a one wild card in Singapore for the the play like a, there should be some kind of secondary race that starts after Wimbledon. So. So you you get the player who didn't otherwise qualify, who was the hottest for the second half of the season. Uh, and I realize I'm doing what I was just condemning a few minutes ago and making the rules more complicated. But at least those two things would would seem to 
increase fan interest or at least increase increase my interest um, if you, if you have one player who can ride a strong wave of form into the tour finals I mean, taking nothing away from Kiki Burton's uh, I think someone like Sabalenka would have been at least as interesting to have in the field as Kiki Burton's was or Ashley Barty would be if Zhuhai had come first and Barty had gotten a wild card into Singapore and I mean, she was already there for doubles, so why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's another another way they could do that is just take the best singles player in the doubles field and <laughs> put her in there. That would be and, efficient. Or they could do that in in London and thus get Jack Sock into the draw for a second year year in a row. <laughs> do we know if um, is he the best singles player in the, in the doubles field in London? Actually, probably not. If Herbert is there, Herbert is ranked higher. Yeah. Um, but do we know if um, if Jack Sock is playing with Mike Bryan or is Bob coming back for the finals? So I've been checking this embarrassingly often <laughs> and it, it turns out there aren't a lot of journalists covering this every day but the ATP site has consistently shown Sock and Bryan as being in London and Bryan and Bryan as not being active um, but that could just be because yeah Bryan and Bryan aren't active but plan to be in in a week so I, i'm not 100 percent sure but it, everyone was talking during sock matches in paris as if he was playing london um and i don't think it's because they thought he was going to qualify it for singles yeah well i think he's been he's been mathematically eliminated for a long time now maybe in april yeah yeah uh, probably in april how would you feel about the winner of milan getting a wild card into into um London, obviously a different situation because it's not the next best players. It's the best players under an age cutoff. Yeah, that's my problem with it is is exactly what you said in the beginning that the these these tournaments serve to make the rich richer both in points and money. And at least with Milan, it's acknowledged that they're not open. It's not open to everyone. So, yeah, there's some money for showing up. But there's no ranking points. But I think if the winner did get to advance to London, then you get a decent amount of ranking points just for playing those three matches, I think. Um, no, you get zero if you lose. Oh, okay. Never mind then. So maybe it would be okay. But I guess it's always possible to, to let someone in but not give them the ranking points. That would be a little bit strange also. Um, but yeah, that feels feels a little bit wrong to me. Although on the other hand it would make it more likely that the best players would compete. I, I'm not sure whether Shapovalov is skipping it because he's truly injured or because he just doesn't want to play, but maybe if, if a London spot were at stake, then Shapovalov would be playing in Milan. Yeah, I mean, it could just be, hey, I played this before. I got I got the feel of it. It was great. Let me, let's give someone else a chance, um, which I would understand. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I think as long as the rules are set ahead of time which I mean they, they usually are and what the, and it's not a it's not a true like discretionary wild card I'm in favor of having more like unorthodox paths into tournaments like I just suggested the two about ways to get into Singapore so I don't love this one because not everyone can qualify for the next gen finals but if there were some convoluted way for a player to get the eighth spot in London then I think I'm okay with that I mean especially if it makes the field more interesting because in an eight player field sometimes seven and eight are are interesting and end up having an impact on the field but often they're just sort of whipping boys for for, 
for the top players. So if you're going to have whipping boys, then I mean maybe there's a way to to, to make them true wild cards and a way to get somebody like Kachanov in right now might be better than Team or Nishikori, who's Nishikori hasn't won a title this year. Team is on maybe his worst surface. So I don't think you lose a lot if you exclude them from the tournament. Win four top ten matches to win Paris, and you're directly into London. <laughs> yeah, the Nalbandian rule. And the Kachanov rule now. Yeah, exactly. So that brings us... Oh, almost exactly to the end of our hour. So let's wrap it up there. Carl, thank you as always. Thanks, Jeff. And hopefully next week we'll be able to do this again and, and dig into the London field, which probably still won't have Kachanov, but we will find it interesting anyway, I'm sure. Maybe we'll also talk about the Fed Cup and its lack of American women in the top 100. Fun stuff like that. So thank you everyone for listening. Hope you'll join us next week, and we will see you then.